You are listening to a sermon from Restoration Church, a gospel-centered, biblically-saturated church located in Noblesville, Indiana. To learn more, visit restoration.community. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It's wonderful to be with you. It's wonderful, wonderful privilege that I have to conclude our series on Malachi today. We look forward to Matt beginning our series on John in a couple weeks. Worship team, I want to say thank you for leading us in worship through singing, through music. That was beautiful. They sang, we sang, without the instruments, all creatures of our God and King. Beautiful hymn, and it's fitting for study which reminds us that we are all creatures of our God and King. Which King? The Great King. We are all creatures of our God and King. I thank you, worship team. As I said, I have the privilege of uh, concluding our study of Malachi, leading us in a time of worship through study of the text. Um, I want to review a little bit first. Remember... A couple weeks ago, I tried to demonstrate that Malachi as a whole is a covenant lawsuit brought against a disobedient and recalcitrant vassal, the Lord's people who had broken the covenant. Chapter 1 gave the justification Yahweh had for the lawsuit, namely that he had given Israel a land and an inheritance, thereby demonstrating his love for And his protection over Jacob or Israel. Specifically, the lawsuit was against the priesthood and the charges were many. Brad and Dan, as they preach chapter 2 and 3, have explained to us those charges. And what a faithful vassal and obedient people would do or ought to do to make things right. To follow the covenant. Now we come to chapter 4. And uh, I'm going to read this this short section in a, in a moment, and then we'll pray over it. It's, uh, it's my, I, I believe it's my obligation to accept the divine challenge in this text to demonstrate to you that this passage is critical for an understanding of not just the Old Testament, but this figures prominently in the New Testament. So I, I'm going to pray after I read this that the Lord will give me will have given me insight into the text and now will give me clarity to explain how this passage is so important for understanding the motif of Moses and Elijah and John and then Jesus as the fulfillment of this prophet figure throughout the Old Testament. So if you would, turn with me to Malachi 4. And I'll read this. I have the NIV. Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. But for you who revere my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Then you will trample down the wicked They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I do these things, says the Lord Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, 
the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Pray with me over this text. Heavenly Father and great King, thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for a time of worship through song, through study, through response, communion, and giving. I pray now that you will have given me proper insight into this passage and now a clarity to explain it. Bless us all this day, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We see in chapter 4 that Yahweh has in mind a great and terrible day when he will distinguish the righteous from the wicked. The main point, I'll tell you at the very beginning, the main point of this passage is that great and terrible day of the Lord. And I believe that main point was to cause anticipation among the original audience, Jews of that time, anticipation for that great and terrible day that was coming, a coming day in the future from their perspective. After all, in Malachi 3.16, we are told that the Jews themselves distinguished between the righteous and the unrighteous. Then in climactic chapter 4, we read that Yahweh would do the same in a great and final decisive act of distinguishing the righteous from the unrighteous. The action of the Jews would be followed by a similar yet more decisive action by Yahweh. There is more in this text, though, than that main idea. More than just the main point that the Jews should expect a coming day of the Lord. There are details that make this main point more dramatic in parts of this passage that are so important to our understanding of New Testament theology, New Testament history, and our faith in Jesus as Lord. So, if you are taking notes, section one would be notes on the text. And section two, in a little bit, will be Malachi 4 in the New Testament. And then section three will be a section of application. And I will spend more time on application today than I might normally do. Why? Because we finished a book. We've studied an entire book, and we can see the whole message in its context. And that's a natural and proper and good time for a little extra application. So three sections. Let us begin then with section one, notes on the text. In the Hebrew Bible, chapter four actually is the conclusion to chapter three. In other words, in the Hebrew Bible, there is no chapter four. I read my English Bible several times, wondering why would there be no chapter 4 in the Hebrew? And I focused on the end of chapter 3 and, and chapter 4 especially. And I thought, why do these go together? And I realized that there is what I think is an obvious authorial intent to create a chiastic structure. And that chiastic structure causes the reader to focus on the concept of the day of the Lord. What is a chiastic structure? 
and how does it function? Producer John is going to put up my one slide for today. Thank you, John. You can see here that a chiastic structure creates a chevron shape in the text. It's a literary structure, something like how we teach our students in high school to write an essay, an introduction, three main points, and a conclusion. You have these five sections. But in ancient Semitic literature, this was the convention. And at the point of the chevron, that's the focus. And you can see I've written some text, and then below it, my description of what those few words are saying. And you can see how the first and the fifth elements are closely related, and the second and the fourth are closely related, all moving toward the tip of the chevron, the main point, the day of the Lord. Notice that this chiastic structure begins in chapter 3, 17, and moves us through the end of what we see as chapter 3 in English through the first half of chapter 4. Again, that explains to me why there is no chapter 4 in Hebrew, because the logic of the thought moves us right on through into chapter 4. There's no break in the logic in the mind of the writer as he was divinely inspired by God to write this. This typical Semitic literary structure binds parts of the passage together and focuses the attention on the central idea. In this case, that idea is the day of the Lord. This structure and the fact that it ties these several verses together confirms, in my mind, that the day mentioned in 317, 41, and 43 are all the same day. We also learn that the day that is coming is a day of judgment when the Lord will spare some and separate the righteous from the wicked, and the wicked will be totally destroyed. We read in metaphorical language in 4, 1 through 3, that the righteous will live and rejoice, and the wicked will be burned up. In short, the focus of the united, coherent thought of 317 through 43 is that there is a coming day of judgment in the future from the perspective of the original audience. Why do I keep saying from the original audience? Because I'm going to argue, argue in a bit that from our perspective, the day has come. If you're one who likes to write in your Bible, you might underline the day of the Lord. Because that is the main idea here. This chiastic structure is related logically to 4, 4 through 6. And moves us naturally onto those verses. Because those verses continue to explain the coming day of the Lord. We then come to verse 4. Where Yahweh, through Malachi, commanded the audience to remember the law. Why did he make this command? We know that the audience was the priesthood. And that explains this explicit command. But there are two very interesting nuances that help us understand the command and the meaning of the verse in its context as part of the whole. 
First, the word for law here is the Hebrew word Torah. It is the same word used back in chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. I would like you to turn there. There it means not only the law code, but right teaching or instruction in general. So hopefully you're there by now. I'm going to read those verses and I'm going to insert the word Torah where it's used in the Hebrew. So you get a sense as you're reading along in English how that word is used. Verse 6 in chapter 2. Torah was in his mouth and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge and from his mouth men should seek Torah. Because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. But you have turned away, you have turned from the way, and by your Torah have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people. Because you have not followed my ways, but have shown partiality in matters of the Torah. So there are four times you see that Torah is used differently. Sometimes it seems to mean the law code, as in the last time. But at other points, it seems to mean more generally instruction, upright teaching. Malachi 4.4 then, in my opinion, is not talking about the law code itself and only the law code. But about the whole corpus of Mosaic teaching. Not just the 613 laws but all the teaching contained in the book of, books of Moses, his instruction, his wise guidance. In other words, Yahweh exhorted the priests to remember all of the instructions to Moses, not just 613 laws, although they were to remember those as well. This concept also appears in Micah 6.8. If you'd like to turn there, the same idea appears in Micah 6.8. Micah 6.8. Remember, this is just a little bit after that lawsuit we read a few weeks ago. 6.8 says, He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You see, the law was more than just about the law code, but about right instruction, guidance. Back in Malachi 4.4, there's one more detail to highlight. The detail I'm going to explain in verse 4 moves us along from verse 4 into verse 5 and helps us to see the passage as the original audience would have heard it and helps us to see the significance of the figure Elijah and his anticipated return. In verse 4, Yahweh finished the command by saying, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb. Horeb. This mention of Horeb should catch our attention because Horeb, another name for Mount Sinai, occurs only five times outside of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And not coincidentally, one time is here, 
And one time is in 1 Kings 19.8. You don't have to turn there. You might want to write it down and look at it later. But in 1 Kings 19.8, it says this. Elijah got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Look back in Exodus 3.1, or write it down and look later. I'm not going to turn there. In Exodus 3.1, we read, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. In 1 Kings 19.8, we read that Elijah fled to Horeb, the mountain of God. And in Exodus 3.1, we read that Moses fled to Horeb, the mountain of God. My point is that Malachi intentionally used the term Horeb instead of Mount Sinai to relate Moses to Elijah. Here, because in the next verse, Malachi 4.5, we read that Elijah will have come before the day of the Lord. And the mention of Horeb would make a poignant and obvious transition from Moses, who was just mentioned in verse 4, to Elijah, who will be mentioned in verse 5. Now, besides being associated with Horeb, the mountain of God, there is another reason these two men were closely related in the minds of the Jews at the time of Malachi and after. Both were considered a forerunner, a shadow of a prophet figure to come. One of the most important passages in the Old Testament, in the minds of the Jews, as they expected a Messiah, was Deuteronomy 18.18, which they interpreted as predicting a coming Messiah, a coming Messiah who would be like Moses. We see this interpretation and expectation, especially in the Dead Sea Scrolls, where the writers used Deuteronomy 18.18 to explain their expectation and to justify their expectation. But the expectation of a coming Moses also appears in the Gospels, where it would have been based also on Deuteronomy 18.18. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus frequently said, You have heard it said, but I say to you. What they had heard said was said by Moses. And Jesus is saying, I'm telling you something different. What they originally heard was Moses, but Jesus was giving a teaching that superseded Moses' teaching. In other words, Jesus was the new Moses, just as they anticipated Don't forget that the text of the New Testament says that Jesus went up onto a mountain, just as Moses did. These two details would have suggested to the audience that Jesus was the new, anticipated Moses. Furthermore, we know that Herod and the scribes thought that Jesus may be Elijah. Peter and the disciples said some Jews considered Jesus to be Elijah or one of the prophets. And there is another place in the New Testament that closely relates Moses and Elijah with Jesus on the scene. Do you remember where in the New Testament that occurs? If you're saying to your spouse, the transfiguration, you're exactly right. The transfiguration. Do you remember in glorious light Jesus is seen 
talking to Moses and Elijah. You have these three prophet figures together in one place on a mountain in glorious light. What I'm getting at is that this passage in Malachi closely related Moses and Elijah as the greatest prophets, the greatest prophets in their history, and caused the Jews justifiably and correctly to consider Elijah as the Moses figure foretold in Deuteronomy 18.18, but also caused the Jews justifiably and correctly to anticipate a coming, a new prophet figure, like Moses and like Elijah. You see, Moses and Elijah were both shadows or foreshadows of a greater coming reality. Now, two weeks ago, Brad talked about how marriage is a shadow of something else. It represents something else. I agree. And this foreshadowing of a greater spiritual reality is a common Old Testament phenomenon, a divine foreshadowing of either some, something yet to come or something that exists on a spiritual plane that we don't physically see and experience. In verse 4 through 5, that is how the mention of Horeb And Elijah is functioning. It ties Elijah back to the expectation in Deuteronomy 18.18 of one like Moses. Yet sets an expectation of a coming Elijah type before the great and terrible day of the Lord. To demonstrate that the Jews held such an expectation and belief about Moses and Elijah... I want to show you that throughout Jewish literature from 170 BC through 70 AD that the Jews wrote about this expectation of a coming prophetic figure based on Malachi 4, 4 through 5. I want to show you. Let me show you some examples. In the Apocrypha, which is part of the Catholic Bible and the Eastern Orthodox Bible, we read in Sirach 48.10. Elijah was ordained for reproofs in their times to pacify the wrath of the Lord's judgment before it break forth in fury and to turn the heart of the father unto the son and to restore the tribes of Jacob. Notice in that passage that it adds the clause to restore the tribes of Jacob. This part is not in Malachi. Everything else was. And it represents later later than Malachi, later Jewish expectation, which had not been fulfilled at the time of writing. This text dates from 170 BC. From about 90 BC, we read from 1 Maccabees, also in the Apocrypha. The Jews and priests were well pleased that Simon should be their governor and high priest forever until there should arise a faithful prophet. This passage shows us that the Jews expected a prophetic figure to rise and speak Yahweh's instruction and to lead the people. One more short passage from the Dead Sea Scrolls, dating to sometime between 170 and 90 BC. It says, 
They shall govern themselves using the original precepts by which the men of the community began to be instructed, doing so until there come the prophet and the messiahs of Aaron and Israel. These texts show us that the Jews had a strong and continuous belief in a coming prophet based on Deuteronomy 18.18 and Malachi 4.4-5. So what, Kaufman? You may say, I will answer that in time. But first, we need to look at another very important New Testament passage that contains obvious evidence of the same expectation and hope. I want to study the Moses, Elijah, prophet motif in Jesus' teaching and how it helps us understand the New Testament, John the Baptist, Jesus' ministry, and our lives under the new covenant. This section, section two, is Malachi in the New Testament. Turn with me, keeping your bookmark or something there at Malachi, to Mark. It's, it's not often that someone gets an opportunity to preach an Old Testament passage that is explicitly explained in the New Testament. This is that opportunity. The thing is, though it occurs multiple times in the New Testament, I say explicit, it's not always explicit. Mark 9, 11 through 12. This is after the transfiguration. Jesus has been seen in glorious light talking with Moses and Elijah. Peter says, let's put up three tents. And they're coming down from the mountain. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the son of man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come. And they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. Now, the Greek verb... For say, in verse 9, is a present continuous verb. In Greek, this would emphasize not so much the time as it would the continuous nature of the action. In other words, it's more important that we understand the action, the saying, was continuous. Not that it necessarily happened in the present. So it may be translated like this. Why do the teachers of the law in this day and age always say that Elijah must come first? My first point in this section is that even up to Jesus' day, the religious leaders believed and taught that Elijah would come first before an anticipated final moment or event in history. But in Mark's record of the conversation, Jesus did not tell us explicitly who the Elijah figure was. Turn now to Matthew 17, 11 through 12. Matthew 17, 11 through 12. Verse 10 is exactly the same as... um, The verse back in Mark, the disciples asked him about Elijah. But Jesus' response is a little different. He says, 
To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. I tell you, Elijah already has come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Now, if you're reading along, notice what the writer, Matthew, says next. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Notice something very interesting here. Matthew, who wrote after Mark and utilized very much of what Mark wrote, clarified Jesus' teaching on the coming Elijah figure. Matthew recorded that the disciples, whom we know often had difficulty understanding Jesus' teaching before the resurrection, seemed to be very clear here about what Jesus meant. They knew that he was teaching about John. One more passage, Matthew 11. Matthew 11, 12 through 14. Matthew 11, 12 through 14. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful, forceful men lay hold of it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He is the Elijah who was to come. Here, Jesus, in his own words, told his disciples and the audience explicitly that John the Baptist was their anticipated Elijah figure. So then, if John were the coming anticipated Elijah Moses prophet figure, what was the great and terrible day of the Lord that he was supposed to come before. How does Malachi 3:17 through 4:5 relate to history? And what does it mean for us? Here is how I understand it based on the Old Testament, based on the intertestamental period, especially based on Malachi and Jewish messianic expectation and based on the New Testament. Here's how I understand it. In Deuteronomy 18.18, Yahweh promised to send a prophet figure like Moses to Israel. He did so in the figure of Elijah, who was a shadow of a greater prophet figure. One who would fully and completely fulfill prophetic expectation. In this way, both Moses and Elijah pointed forward to John the Baptist. John, as the anticipated prophet, came before the day of the Lord. What was the day of the Lord? I believe it was the day or event of Jesus' death and resurrection, the decisive moment in history when Yahweh himself began the final judgment between the righteous and the unrighteous. The moment in time Not necessarily a day, but the moment in time when there was made a distinction, as Malachi predicted, between Yahweh's treasured possession and the wicked. Looking back from our vantage point, we know that the treasured possession is the body of Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, those who believe Jesus died for sins once and for all, and that his actual, factual, bodily, historical resurrection demonstrated that he truly was the Messiah. We also know that the wicked who will be burned up like chaff are those who deny these central beliefs of our faith, these central historic truths about Jesus. But there is one more verse in Malachi 4. Let's look back to Malachi, the concluding verse. Verse 6 says, He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. In my understanding, this means that the appearance of the expected Elijah figure, John, would cause fathers to instruct their sons in acceptable faith in Yahweh and would cause sons to turn to the faith of their fathers. Look back at Malachi 2.10. Looking back at Malachi 2.10, this sounds very similar to that. Have we not all one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers? By breaking faith with one another. This verse explicitly mentions the covenant of the fathers. If this turning did not happen, the land would be cursed. This is exactly what happened. In 70 AD, 40 years after Jesus' rejection and his crucifixion and resurrection, the temple, the center point, the focus of Jewish religion was destroyed. It was raised by the Romans completely. And in 135, after another rebellion of the Jews, the Romans sent the Jews away from the city. They were expelled and not allowed to return, and the city was renamed from Jerusalem to Elia Capitolina. The land was cursed. That's how I see the the history. Brothers and sisters... Here is my brief summary of section 1 and 2. Malachi's prediction of a coming prophet was fulfilled in John. Jesus taught this very truth. John anticipated the great and terrible day of the Lord, which was both great and terrible, because it inaugurated Yahweh's divine judgment. That day was not a literal day. It was a moment, an event, and that event was the death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah, our Lord. Now, how should we live in light of this book, Malachi, and how it figures in the New Testament? Here is an answer to the question you may have asked earlier. So what, Kaufman? Here in section three of your notes, application is where I will spend a little extra time. As I said, because we've concluded the book, we've studied the whole book, We've tried to look at it in its original context. We thought theologically, now let's apply it. Our study of Malachi should affect how we behave because it affects how we view Jesus. He is our great king who chose us, Yahweh's treasured possession. Imagine it, we here are Yahweh's treasured possession. He chose his treasured possession to make a covenant with Therefore, we are under covenant obligation to live a holy life. 
dedicated to his service and glory. Malachi represented a covenant lawsuit. Malachi, the book, as I argued three weeks ago, represented a covenant lawsuit. Because God punishes those who do not obey the covenant. Likewise, there will be a final punishment for the wicked who do not observe the covenant when we spread the gospel, depending on the audience and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, it may be appropriate and it would not be untrue to tell people that the great king calls his treasured possession sons and daughters, but that those who are not his children will suffer the punishment. That is the nature of a covenant. Application two, because we, brothers and sisters, are under the covenant It is our joy to honor the king by honoring our marriages. We must protect our marriages and we must turn away from anything that compromises them because they represent a sacred bond between two people. But they are also a shadow of the spiritual reality that unites Yahweh with his treasured possession, his chosen people. To put it another way, each marriage represents Christ and his church, and that union deserves our supreme reverence. Application three. We, like the priests of old, must offer the proper sacrifice, which is mercy, justice, and walking humbly with our God, just as it says in Micah. In New Testament language, proper sacrifice is giving ourselves to God wholly, as the only part of creation that bears his divine image. Application four. We must offer our tithes. I am convinced that we should offer a tenth of our resources. Personally, Audra and I offer a tenth before our taxes are figured. This represents our best and our first. The Lord has always blessed us with enough and on occasion more than enough. The great king in the ancient world was owed a tenth. Yahweh is the great king. He is owed a tenth. And that convention, that ancient law of the tenth, was reality long before there was a Mosaic code. In other words, the tenth, in my opinion, is still in force because it was not part of the Mosaic code. It was inherent in God's nature and in his status as the great king, a status which Jesus now shares. There is one more application that I saved for last since it is part of the evidence that convinced me of the truth of scripture and turned my heart to Jesus as Lord and Savior. It is the part of my application that bears on how we should think and what we believe. And it's another Answer to the question you may have asked earlier, so what, Kaufman? We know that Jesus taught that John was the anticipated Elijah figure and that John inaugurated the day of the Lord. We know that Matthew and Mark recorded that teaching and the subsequent church, which was made up entirely of Jews, believed it was true. Why would good monotheistic Scripturally based, scripturally literate, historically aware Jews of the middle first century, except that John was the coming Elijah predicted by Malachi, 
and that the day of the Lord had come just because Jesus, who had been crucified as a common criminal, had said so. To put it another way, since Jesus had been crucified like thousands of other Jews by the Romans, why would anyone believe his teaching that John, who was announcing the arrival of Jesus as Messiah, fulfilled 400 years of waiting on an anticipated prophet? Or to put it briefly, why believe anything that the crucified Jesus said about John and Elijah, the day of the Lord, or anything at all? There were dozens of messiahs at the time of Jesus, dozens. It wasn't Jesus' death that caused the first Christians to believe what he taught or to believe that he was the messiah. All the other messiahs met the same fate at the hands of the Romans or they were completely lost to history. And we know nothing about them. The reason the first Jewish Christians believed John was the anticipated prophet, they believed what Jesus taught about John, is an historical reason. Some of you may know where this is going. The reason Jews did eventually make sense of Jesus' teaching about John and Elijah, and did believe the anticipated prophet had come, and did spread Jesus' message to the Gentile world, was the resurrection. Amen. The resurrection. Because the resurrection occurred, they had the opportunity to review all that Jesus taught and say, I understand. In light of a dead body in the tomb, no such thing would have happened. Brothers and sisters, visitors, anyone here or listening who does not know Jesus as Lord, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is plentiful and beyond any reasonable doubt. It's rooted in history. What I have explained here, based on Malachi 4, is a tiny bit of that evidence. One little bit. The only reason the first Christians wrote Matthew and Mark in the first place and spread the books around Judea and Galilee and into the Gentile world and beyond, and the reason other Jews and Gentiles would believe it, and the reason why they could believe that John was the anticipated Elijah figure spoken of in Malachi 4, was that Jesus was raised from the dead, vindicating his teaching and proving that he was God's Messiah and proving that he should be Lord of your life and mine. If you want to know more evidence, please come find me after the service. If you want to know how Jesus can be Lord of your life, come find any elder, Brad, Rob, Dan, and Matt, and talk to us about it. Brothers and sisters, because we know Jesus as Lord, we remember the covenant that he made with us in his blood on the night before he was betrayed. This remembrance we call communion. And we're about to take communion to remember the covenant that he made. And as we remember that covenant, we remember we are his covenant people, his treasured possession, his sons and daughters. We remember that Jesus was raised from the dead. This communion remembrance covenant remembrance is for anyone who is in Jesus Christ and calls him Lord of their life. If that's you, this is for you. If that's not you, what you need 
is to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And as I said, come find an elder. We'd love to talk to you about it. In a minute, Brad is going to come up, play some music. You can remain seated until you're ready. Come up, take the communion elements, return to your seat, and consume them. As we remember the covenant made in Jesus' blood for our sake. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Restoration Church. To learn more, visit us online at restoration.community. If you're in the Noblesville area, join us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for worship.